Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device, clinical, and regulatory strategy from bench to bedside. Today's episode is all about generics, how they're made from patented drugs, how they may differ, and how they're regulated. Right, but if you wait for it to go off patent, you're far behind six other competitors making a generic. They've been working on it for years. <laughs> so you're looking, yeah, years yeah. ahead to see what's going off patent in 2030, mm-hmm. and let's start it tomorrow. Right. We are joined today by Brandy Quinlan and Rebecca Lynch. Together, we discuss how generics are made originally, how they're tested, what the requirements are as far as clinical trials, how they are scaled to mass production, and why they often work just as well as brand drugs. Brandy Quinlan holds a master's degree in regulatory affairs and has years of experience working in drug development and regulation from the bench to the regulatory side. Rebecca Lynch has a deep background in analytical method development, drug formulation, and biologics. She is one of Global's resident generics experts with over 25 years of experience in the generic pharmaceutical industry. Let's talk to Brandy and Rebecca. Brandy and Rebecca, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to come on Chasing Compliance. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. So today we're going to talk about CMC a bit more itself um, and how CMC interacts with what we would consider clinical pieces of drug production or how it fits into the drug production process overall. So um, first off, let's let's do some high level background. What is a drug product? Basically, it's it's um, an active ingredient and inactives in the simplest terms. And the active ingredient in in a, you know just a simple drug like a like a tablet or you know what non pharma people call a pill. It's um, you know if you're taking an aspirin tablet, it's the aspirin. It's the chemical that we call acetylsalicylic salicylic acid. Sorry. <laughs> Um, so, you know, when I'm talking to non-scientists, non-pharma people, I tell them it's the chocolate chip in the chocolate chip cookie. And um, then the inactives, just just as the name sounds, you know, they're, they're um, the ingredients that are not providing a therapeutic effect. The active is what's actually um, the key, you know, the antibiotic or whatever that's going into the body to produce the effect that's wanted to treat the condition. So the inactives are the fillers and the carriers. You don't just make an entire tablet out of aspirin by itself because you need ingredients to keep it in the shape of a tablet and to keep it stable over a few years and to, you know, be able to even press a tablet in the first place. You know, if you took a, again, back to the cookie analogy, if you took a handful of flour um, just by itself and you tried to squeeze it into a tablet it's or a cookie, it, it's not going to work. So you have to have other ingredients together to get that final dosage form. I don't know if you're squeezing hard enough. <laughs> I like, that I like that it. analogy because a lot of people that, you know, don't have any background in science, that's easy for them to visualize yeah. why you would need the um, excipients or inactives, right? Because you might actually, you, you can't make the end product without, without them sometimes. So yeah, that's yeah. helpful. I found the cooking analogy was good. Yeah. Cause 
everybody's pretty much everybody's made chocolate chip cookies or they've eaten one. And so <laughs> it's easy. And a to chocolate chip to. is good, right? Like yeah. You can just eat a handful of them. But, you know, something <laughs> about that chocolate chip cookie, you know, <laughs> is very good, right? Yeah. Brandy, you just you just hit on my follow up question to that is. A chocolate chip alone is just a chocolate chip. And the cookie part of, if you took the chocolate chips out of a chocolate chip cookie, the cookies are still pretty good. But it's my impression or understanding that the the cookie part of our chocolate chip cookie analogy, when we're talking about active and inactive ingredients, it's a, it's a bigger dichotomy. So do the inactive ingredients help the active ingredients work at all? And if they do, are they then considered some type of active ingredient? Like this isn't really applied, but like an adjuvant for a vaccine. Right. Sometimes, um, you know, you might have an excipient that's rate releasing. So if you have like an extended release formula, um, that excipient could be key to helping the product do that rate releasing action that you have. So it can be very important molecularly it seems like some in some cases extended release versions of a of a drug are the active ingredient is molecularly identical to the uh um, instant release but the way that it's delivered to the body the bioavailability is different and the bioavailability may depend on the excipients or inactive ingredients is that correct right great yeah, I've got a food analogy for that one too. I like what I came up with was, you know, for the extended release, it's you could it's kind of like a sandwich and so you've got bread and then you've got the filling and with an extended release tablet, you're actually putting the active ingredient into both of them. And so when the person swallows the tablet, the bread might dissolve in their stomach right away and that's the initial release of the active and then the filling, like maybe it's meat or something that takes a little longer to digest that goes into the intestines and then it's broken apart there. And so that keeps the active releasing, you know, over time as, as it moves through the body and it's digested. I'm going to be hungry. Yes. (laughs) I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, with that in mind, can you explain how formulation works? How People decide what an active ingredient is, what to combine it with. Is it different for a novel pharmaceutical than a generic? I assume, I mean, apart from for a novel pharmaceutical, you probably have a novel compound. So we know that that's there. But um, from the formulation standpoint, are there differences? There can be. It depends on within, within the realm of generics. There's some variation on how similar the generic has to be to the brand. And a lot of times it has to do with um, what we call the route of administration or how the drug product is entering the body. We have a little more leeway with tablets, pills, with oral dosage forms because those are swallowed. They go down into the stomach, they're digested, and they they go through the liver before they enter the bloodstream. So it's called a first pass effect. And they, they're, it affects the distribution differently than if you took, for an example, an injection that went right into the bloodstream. You, you know, put the needle in the patient's arm, it goes right into the blood. And usually for generics, um, something like an injectable or a parenteral, um, those are much more restrictive 
on how much you can change the inactive ingredients from the brand that usually have to be pretty similar. That's really interesting. I know that the first pass effect can be really challenging with some therapeutics. And and for those who are not familiar, just to restate that, that's when a drug goes in through the oral route and is absorbed into the bloodstream through the gut, the blood that goes to the small intestine and the stomach actually then passes through the liver and the liver will take the medicine and sometimes modify it or alter it or destroy some of it. So it changes the bioavailability. There are some drugs that actually utilize this physiological process and will use the first pass effect to have a modification to make it active. But it's something that we have to consider physiologically. And that's why we see some of these drugs out there that are that are um, injectables, especially like subcutaneous or intramuscular injectables. Right. And then we have, you know, we've talked a lot about drugs that go inside the body, but then we also have, you know, drugs like topicals, um, you know, like a like a cream uh, that you might put on your skin to treat a skin condition. And so those also have, as far as the generics go, those have a little more leeway to, um, you know, as far as the inactive ingredients, because it's not, it's, it's more of a local effect. It's not really being systemically absorbed into the body. So usually with generic, um, as far as the inactives go, though, you do kind of want to match the brand drug if you can, um, because it's a, it's a big part of just patient familiarity. If somebody's been going to the pharmacy and getting their tablets and they've been getting the brand and then they get switched to a generic and it's a different color or a different shape, it, it, it doesn't look familiar. And so first the patient wonders, did I get the right med? And then they can sometimes start thinking, does it work as well? And so um, it's nice to, to keep it very similar if possible. Yeah, that's when they do the reverse engineering, which is what happens with generics. Um, you know, you're trying to match your um, reference product drug, which we usually call the RLD. You know, they're they're looking at that and reverse engineering it, right, to see like what are all the pieces and how much, like, what are the percentages of them, and a, a big part is at the end, right, because you want the same size and shape. And that's really important for swallowability because as a patient, if you 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 are on the brand name and then you get a generic, um, you don't want to just all of a sudden come up with this giant pill that you have to swallow when the original is not that big, right? Yeah, and film coating can be another thing, you know, that that can vary between a generic tablet and and a brand. You know, if the generic's trying to trying to cut costs and save costs for the patient, they might try to eliminate a film coat. But then again, when you go to swallow it, then you get mm-hmm. the the tablet stuck in your throat, and that's not very nice. Oh, okay. So that's the rationale between behind the the horse pills that we've seen from time to time. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's really interesting. They actually have studies on swallowability, and um, yeah, you have to you have to meet certain criteria for that. So. Quick digression, just because I'm terribly interested. Do they do that with a, like a sugar pill? Like a pill that's the same form factor, but obviously doesn't have anything in it? Oh, a lot of times it's the same, like your excipient mix. Okay. Just without the active. Once we've either reversed engineered our generic or made something novel in the lab, we need to make sure that we have what we think we're having, or at least drug manufacturers need to, to make sure that 
the compound that they've synthesized or what they've reverse engineered and then reproduce is actually what they have. So how do firms decide what testing methods to use? How do they, and more importantly, how do they determine when the testing methods are sufficient? From a regulatory standpoint, how do we demonstrate that they're sufficient? Um, the easiest way as far as telling um, which test methods to use, um, one, one we have a, a major industry guidebook that we go by, um, which we call the USP, which stands for United States Pharmacopeia. And it's a, the paper form is a great big, huge book. It's like the size of a dictionary phone book for a major city. And it has um, basically an index of drugs and some raw materials, and it will give standards. It, it, a USP, um, I think, to a lot of patients implies credibility. It implies um, regulation in a good sense in that there's a minimum criterion that this drug has to meet for all its aspects, purity and content and, and so forth. And so that can be a starting place. Most of the time, um, you know, if you're if you're making a drug, it's it's good to um, have it match the USP. Um, it's called the monograph for the drug. And so that's often a starting place for um, knowing what methods that you need to run. Right. And people will generally see that on their prescription, like if they look at the bottle or the packaging that comes on, the name will have like USP after it. If there's, yeah, if it if it's something that is part of the USP. And so then we can, um, we work with the USP also um, is often a, a, a key guidance in knowing that our methods are are good, that they're valid. Um, there's a chapter, a couple of key chapters on what we call method validation. And it, essentially that means that you're challenging your method in various ways. So you challenge the parameters and the conditions and you change them a little and you see if you still get the same result. And the whole idea there really is that you want you want a robust method. If you're, you know, back to the cookie analogy again, if you're, you know, if your oven has to be exactly at 350 degrees on the dot. And a lot of people are going to be using this recipe in a lot of houses with different ovens, and they might not all be at 350, although that's what the dial says. You still want your cookies to turn out. So you might change your oven temperature, crank it down to 325, and then see how much it changes your baking time if the cookies still work out. So there are, there's, uh, there are regimens of testing that we take methods through to do this validation process. And within the USP, does it pr prescribe actual standard operating procedures for tests? What I'm getting at there is your lab may do high pressure liquid chromatography or tandem mass spec different than my lab, right? And, and, and I'm curious, does a USP say for this type of analyte, we recommend, and I'm, I'm going very high level here, but we recommend HPLC or high pressure liquid chromatography, but not necessarily get into the details apart from, you know, critical pieces. Yeah, I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, yeah, I think I think they do that um, in the sense uh, recommend probably isn't a word that they use a lot because what they what both they and the FDA usually want the drug applicant to do is to um, 
come up with their own plan. Like these are the methods we're going to use and then provide a justification. This is scientifically justified because, you know, it makes sense to do this on this type of drug product. We have a risk of, you know, um, let's say we have an active that degrades very easily under heat and light. And so your concern there would be that your, your, your tablet over time when the patient has it sitting in the medicine cabinet, maybe in the bathroom, and it's exposed to some heat, that over time it's not going to maintain its therapeutic level. So with this product, we have a risk of maybe losing therapeutic value and getting some impurities growing. So it makes sense to test it very rigorously for assay and degradance over time. Mm. So, so that's, that's kind of what they're looking for the applicant to come back and justify what they're doing and why. Okay. So to bring it back to the cookie analogy, all the recipes say to bake. So the USP says to bake the cookies, but you need to demonstrate that putting them on the top rack and not the bottom rack is okay. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. We're definitely going to need cookies. (laughs) (laughs) So we're in the lab and we've eaten some cookies, but we've also reverse engineered this generic we would like to make from a brand drug. And we've decided to move to the next step on how to formulate it ourselves. How do drug manufacturers consider the physical properties of the drug? How do they figure out how they want to package it? Does it have anything to do with the bioavailability? Does it have anything to do, are there there any type of regulations that prevent them from packaging in a certain way? How do they consider how to, the form factor of the drug and the, the vehicle or the, the way that it's delivered to the body? The form factor, again, I think, um, you know, back with generics, we have the, the patient compliance portion and the patient comfort um, part. And, and I should have also mentioned that FDA, this is actually with generics, it's really important. FDA has quite a bit of guidance on this. So you definitely have um, parameters if you're like if you're making a tablet, you have um, you have limits on how much you can change the size and the shape. Um, they're a little more relaxed on color, but they do um, sometimes, you know, get kind of concerned about that as well. Um, I actually had a um, my first project ever in pharmaceutical in the generic world. Um, we were making a uh, tablet, and it was a it was a buckle tablet, which means that um, it's kind of like a sublingual where it goes under your tongue, but in the buckle, it's, it goes on your cheek pouch. So it's not actually swallowed, but you just tuck it in your mouth and let it dissolve. It was a, it was a pain tablet. There were three strengths and we got all the way through making all the registration batches, doing the testing, validating the process and the methods. And then marketing decided that they wanted to change the colors. And that was important enough that we had to go back and basically redo the whole thing from square one. So, um, so the, the form factor a lot of times is, is for generics, it's determined off the brand. So for generic packaging, a lot of times we follow the brand there too, because, because of the limitations on how much we can change tablet sizes and shapes, it makes sense to follow the brand as far as how they packaged it as well, since we would expect the tablet itself to look similar 
One thing, and it's also, I think, helpful for the pharmacist in that the way a lot of pharmacies are organized, you know, say you have a brand tablet and then your pharmacy carries two generics, they usually stock them on the shelves next to each other. And so there's a whole consideration as far as packaging with the labeling too. say the brand has three strengths and they have the labels, three different colors for the strengths. A lot of times the generic will want to do the same size bottle, the same size color labels, because it's just easier on the pharmacist. They're in a hurry, you know, running around and they're less likely to make a mistake that way. Right. And for the, like for tablets or whenever we would make some generics, you know, it's, it's pretty key. There's a lot of guidance on the variants, right? On, on how exact it has to be for the brand name drug that you're copying. And you know, we would take pictures in the lab with next to rulers with like a nice light to get the same, like the exact size measurements and pictures for it uh, for the application. So when you're writing and we usually submitted the pictures along with it, with the measurements, because they're, they actually want to look at that. Yeah. And so for matching the labeling too, it's pretty exact down through you know, you have the patient insert, you know, the little paper that comes out of the box and it folds out like a giant old map that you used to have in your car <laughs> before before GPS. And then you have to figure out how to fold it back up into that tiny little square. <laughs> like all of that has to match um, all the wording in there. Yeah, we literally have to go through them. If you're, formula, if you're mm -hmm. working on a generic, it literally has to go through side by side word by word, and you have to submit an annotated section to the FDA showing them every single difference in that whole big package insert and explain every difference. There's there's actually some pretty cool software out there now that can help with that, and it can, you know, run it side by side, you know, down to the pixel level, which did is Did you have software, awesome. Rebecca? Yeah. I had to do that by hand. I, I, I did it by <laughs> hand, too. But yeah, there's software now. And I'm like, you know, this is the perfect task for a computer. It, it's just right. because it's hours and hours of time. And until I did that for the first time, I thought I was a good detail person. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's another old level of... <laughs> that will teach you to think that you're yeah. detailed, for sure. <laughs> um, and... I mean, you get used to reading those and knowing what's in them. So even for your own own personal use, right, when you have to take something, um, you know exactly where to look um, yeah. because you, you've looked at a, a ton of them. So uh, you know exactly where to look for whatever you're thinking, I want to know about. And it can be very surprising when you bring up questions for your doctor. They, they're like, you actually read that? Like, yeah, of course I did. <laughs> <laughs> I have no life. I just read those for fun. <laughs> hey, it's really interesting that you read the package inserts because I don't think I've ever read one either. <laughs> but, but so in a lot of scenarios, when there's a generic product, you cannot copy the original product, right? That, you know, if, especially if it's pat, if it's covered by any type of intellectual property protection. But in this case, what you're suggesting is you have to get as close as possible. It's in fact, it's, it's required. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting mm -hmm. point. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, but yeah, yeah, that's true. And and we have a whole, you know, we could probably do a, a whole podcast episode on, on you know, drug 
patent law and so forth, which I'm... Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, which is a huge topic. But yeah, there are, there with a generic application, you will have, um, there are certain patent criteria that you have to meet and you have to certify, you know, that you've looked at the brand patent, you've reviewed it, and either, you know, maybe there isn't one or it's already expired. And so anyone who wants to can develop a generic or there are certain situations where you can submit when the patent is about to expire, then there's another whole realm, which is, is, is uh, kind of, you know, the biggest area to, to really dig into legally, but um, uh, non-infringement. So you acknowledge, yes, the, the brand does have patent A, B, and C, but we are not infringing because, and then you you explain, and then you you do usually have some risk for a, a lawsuit, and and there's a whole process that that kicks off if you do that kind of a submission. In a hypothetical scenario, the blockbuster drug that cures itchy knee syndrome goes off patent, and you try to make a you go to make a generic of this no itches all right. The the goal would be to essentially copy as much as you possibly can. Right. But if you wait for it to go off patent, you're far behind six other competitors making a generic. They've been working on it for years. <laughs> so you're looking, yeah, you're yeah. ahead to see what's going off patent in 2030 mm -hmm. and let's start it tomorrow. Right. Um, it takes time to do the reverse engineering and mm -hmm. come up with everything. So yeah, you you generally they're prepared and you're wanting to be first or second off the press because, you know, once you are that first generic brand that doctors start to think, okay, yes, I've tried it. I've, I've, I feel comfortable with prescribing the generic brand of this one a particular drug. And then, you know, sometimes they don't always go with like the second or the third, right? Like, you know, they know your name now and this is the one that they're going to, they're going to um, prescribe. Speaking of getting all the pieces together before it goes off patent. So say you've reverse engineered the drug and you've made your own generic. Do you need to run clinical PK or pharmacodynamic pharmacokinetic studies on the new drug? How does that look? For generics, that that we do not have to do um, generally, and that's that's kind of where the big um, savings come in on generics. You know, a lot of they they're doubtful about generics, and it's I think it's because they kind of don't really understand what parts of the development are shortened and why they can be shortened. So um, we were talking about like another analogy might be. You know, you have a you have an expensive purse like a coach coach brand purse, which, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars minimum and up from there. And then, you know, you have knockoffs for 20 bucks. The way that they make the knockoff is, you know, they might not use as good quality of leather. They the, the metal, you know, zippers and clasps and parts might be, you know, cheap metal that's going to turn your fingers black after a couple Are of weeks. They catch, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate that. And so, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't so, look as good. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> but so you're looking at different materials there. But with generics, that's not where the cost cutting comes in. We have to use, you know, equally 
equally good materials, equally safe, because ultimately our product is still going into people's bodies. So we're still using, you know, those USP grade ingredients. Our active has to be certified in many ways for sameness. That's a huge thing with FDA. But where we're cutting the cost is that we don't have to do all those um, studies in humans again because we have defined and proven that our active ingredient is the same. We get to skip all of that. We do bioequivalency studies, which are, you could think of them as a very abbreviated, you know, sort of clinical study in patients. And, um, you know, a really simple one might be you would have two groups of patients, group A and group B, and you would give group A the brand drug and group B the generic drug. And then you would, you know, take your take your blood samples over time and calculate, you know, how quickly the drug was absorbed and distributed through the patient's body. Then you have what's called a washout period where they're not taking the drugs. Then you go back and you switch the drugs, the patients that got the generic before now get the brand and vice versa. So it's kind of a way of minimizing, you know, variation between patients in that over time, everybody gets both drugs. And then we have criteria that we have to show that um, the two drugs behaved the same way in both groups of patients. Right. So the quality is still there, but we we saved cost of development, thinking of this drug, right? And 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 all the years of clinical studies. So right. Yeah. Right. And because because you use the same zippers, because you use the same materials and all the same pieces we can expect how it's going to react. And yeah, it's probably wise to do a small crossover study where we look at drug metabolites and bioavailability and stuff just to make sure that everything acts as we think it would, but we don't need to do the years of rigorous clinical studies, which which are extremely expensive and, and time consuming. So to go back to the cookie analogy, instead of having to test, do we cook these at 425, 375, 350, how much flour... You maybe you test, you know, does it is it better in my oven at 350 or 355 and you're done. Right. Yeah, generic drugs absolutely have the, the same amount of quality and and consideration and review for new drugs. But you know, the cost savings is within the years of development, trying to find something that works, and then all the clinical studies. Okay, so now we have our generic drug. You've reverse engineered your no itch of femazole epamilol, and we want to mass produce it. What's the process to begin mass manufacture of generic drugs? From a regulatory standpoint, what does that look like? Are there any common mistakes and critical errors that people make in this step? I, you know, what I find a lot, right, because you're doing your application and to get approved you generally want that to be as as quick as you can, right? Like I said, because you want to be first. Um, that, And it's not really maybe a mistake, but it's still something that comes up later that you have one supplier um, for a lot of things. And so then a lot of times when you you want to come back and mass produce or, or, you know, when you're ready to start your manufacturing because you got approval, then you have to start thinking, I need to add in extra manufacturers, I need to get supplies from other people and get that approved. And and that all takes time. 
Yeah, and it it takes a lot of documentation too because it, you know on the the CMC side in general, one of the key um, you know areas that the FDA reviews is is the actual manufacturing record for the drug. So when you are to that point where you're scaling up from those lab batches and um, you're wanting to make you know a commercial size batch of maybe a few hundred thousand tablets. So you have a very detailed manufacturing record that basically gives every single step in the process. So, you know, looking at the the cookie recipe again, it's not just um, a list of ingredients, add two eggs. It's, you know, um, take two eggs, break the shell, you know, add the contents to the bowl, throw away the shell. You know, you're probably weighing the contents as well and... So it's it's it, they're they're huge documents for the simplest dosage form. You know, you might have a a batch record that would be twenty pages, but for something like a sterile injectable where everything is aseptically processed, I mean, they can go up to a couple hundred pages. So I think that's kind of tying in with what Brandy mentioned with the uh, you know multiple suppliers. Then you know you might have to make more batches, and so you've got the cost for all the ingredients and manufacturing, but then you've got a whole lot more documentation as well. Right. How about analytical validity for mass production? How, how does the FDA ensure that analysis lot to lot is being done in a manner that is copacetic? So we, um, with the CMC portion of the application, we submit um, for every batch, we have to submit, um, well, first of all, we have to develop specifications, which are the standards that the drug has to meet for its its purity and, and quality and consistency. And, um, you know, we, so we have um, testing specifications for content in the tablet, but then there are also specifications for the tablet itself. So there's, there's size there's tablet weight, there's um, there's a property called friability, which is basically how easily your tablet crumbles or falls apart, um, tablet hardness, there's all kinds of limits for those. And again, those are something that the FDA looks to the developer, the, the manufacturer to develop the specs and defend them and say why these specs support a safe, effective tablet and um, then we, you know, we have the specs for content. So we would have an assay, you know, typically for a generic on stability, your assay might be able to range from 90 to 110 or maybe 95 to 105 percent. So you know that in if you're making 200,000 tablets in every single tablet, you're not going to have, you know, 100.00 milligrams of active, it's going to range around a little bit. And the FDA understands that. So you have an allowance, but you have to set your allowance and defend what what makes sense, what's effective and what's safe. Right. And this is all thought of before you start manufacturing or anything. It's, it's called your quality um, target profile, like you, you talk about the cookie, right? You know, when you when you say I'm going to make this cookie, you tell the FDA, and 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 really, you want it to be in this document ahead of time. You want to say, I want it to look this way. I want it to smell this way. It's going to 
taste this way. And, and here's what I'm going to do to ensure that. And then you start working towards it, right? You start putting together your plan, your manufacturing plan, your materials, everything, including your specification, right? To, to say, okay, this, this is the goal. And how are we going to get there? And it, it all starts much earlier. Yeah. And FDA also, you know, they recognize that goals that sometimes that you set during development might have to change a little when you get to the commercial phase. You know, it's the difference if you're making, you know, two dozen cookies in your kitchen, but then everybody loves your cookies and you want to start a cookie factory. And so then you're going to be cranking out, you know, thousands of cookies at a time you might have to change a few things. And so, you know, the FDA understands that. And, and again, it's just something that you have to, you have to defend and justify and provide a, a very strongly science-based rationale. For a generic, the, a generic company will take a drug and they will reverse engineer the components of the drug. And they're allowed to skip clinical testing because we understand that the drugs are, from a formulation standpoint, very, very similar, if not identical. They're not identical, but just for all intents and purposes, let's say that they're identical. How does the FDA compare the actual chemical makeup of the proposed generic to the new drug? Because I assume that they cannot see the actual formulation of the drug or there would be no reason to reverse engineer it. So is there some back room somewhere where the FDA compares formulation of patent drug A and generic A? How does that work? So I don't think FDA puts out how <laughs> that they do this or not. Um, I don't know that I've seen it, um, but I, I know for right the formulations and the, and the generic drug company, right, they're doing their best to reverse engineer and, and, and give that um, breakdown because you have to give the percentage and, um, you know, of each ingredient and it's called your batch formula and you have to give that to the FDA. Um, I know I've had questions that have led me to believe that they're absolutely comparing your specifications um, and um, and every everything else to what the um, what the brand name drug has done, because we've gotten back some questions that we think, oh, wonder why they're asking this, <laughs> um, right, Rebecca? And so you you know, it's so specific though. Like I don't want to talk about what kind of question, but like they'd be very specific, and you think. There's no way this doesn't have to do with the drug product, the brand name drug product, because it's too specific of a question. Yeah. Or it might be it might be a little bit off the wall or unexpected. Like usually, you know, if you're developing an immediate release tablet, it there are certain certain ingredients that you kind of expect to see, like if you say a lubricant the first thing that's going to come to mind is magnesium stearate or, you know, mm -hmm. certain fillers that are very right. commonly used. And so, um, and by the same token, you're, you're likely to have very similar specs from one tablet to another, to another. 
But then sometimes the FDA will come in and you've got this dosage form and you've been going along with it for years. And then suddenly they ask you for some specification and you're like, we've never done that for a tablet before. And so, yeah, it, it could be an off the wall question that might might signal you that maybe the agency is looking at something on the brand. As a consumer, I sure hope that the FDA verifies that you did your treasure hunt correctly, right? Right. So they can't tell us about, you know, mm-hmm. are we, are, 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 you know, is our batch formula, formula um, exact, right? Mm-hmm. But they, they can only approve what's extremely close, right? So, right. <laughs> um, so they, we know that they're looking, but I don't, I don't know that they just put out there the uh, you know, when they respond to you about anything, they don't say, well, I've looked at the mm-hmm. brand name that you're mentioning and this, you know, they don't talk about it. Well, if the, if the formulations were significantly different, I would hope that they would require clinical trials, right? So it has to be close. Right. Yeah. It's absolutely. Well, and then, and on top of that too, say that they discovered that um, th- the brand drug there's some type of adverse reaction to one of the components that we, you know, uh, over a long term figured out, then you can target the generics as well because you know that they're made the same way and should produce the same side effects. Yeah. Yeah. They, that's an interesting point about um, about the labeling. The FDA, d- during my time in generics, which has been about the last 20 years, um, the FDA has gone back and forth um, with the labeling um, in that we, the generic has to match the brand exactly. So, you know, you've got that big long package insert that we talked about and it, it talks about, you know, adverse effects and, and how the drug is what's called the ADME absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion, basically how the drug moves through the body and what happens to it. And all those have to be the same, which makes sense if the drug is exactly the same. So normally if, you know, say the brand drug had come out on the market and then after a few years they found a new a new adverse event was showing up, then they would need to change their labeling and the generic would need to change theirs accordingly. So there's a whole process for doing that. And for a short time, a few years ago, the FDA kind of got into a, a different rhythm on that where they were allowing generic manufacturers to update their labeling independently of the RLD, but um, it's it's now back to matching the RLD exactly. Right. And, you know, and, and the FDA is absolutely very active with the generic pharmaceutical um, world. So they they have a lot of meetings during the year where they come and they present you know, things that they've seen on reviewing applications throughout the year and what they would like to see um, industry improve on. And, you know, they're always releasing um, updated guidance and uh, specific drug product testing guidance um, for bioequivalents. Uh, they're, they're very active with working with the generic industry and, and um, it's, it's actually very, very welcoming because when you can when you start into regulatory, you you have a lot of resources to look at because um, they're 
presentations are everywhere and you can see um, they're even on YouTube. You can um, watch and listen to recent presentations and um, they, they give free trainings to um, as well. So um, it, it's very nice to see because they want generics to succeed. They want as many generics for brand name drugs as as, as they can give, you know, and um, to, you know, just to help all the patients that need it, you know, if they're seeing, okay, we, we need, there's not any generics coming in for this, you know, it's, it's a very active. Yeah. FDA has some nice pathways for generic manufacturers to communicate with uh, the FDA reviewers. And, and um, so to echo what Brandy was saying about the, they really want the manufacturers of generics to succeed. We have something called um, controlled correspondences where it's a, it's a formal uh, pathway to ask FDA development questions about your drug. So, you know, say you do want to alter an, an inactive ingredient um, by a certain amount or, you know, maybe change it altogether and you're not quite sure whether it's okay, you think it probably is, but you can write a controlled correspondence and submit it to FDA electronically and explaining your situation and what you want to do. And then they have a, a goal date by which they need to review your question and get back to you with an answer. It's good to know. It's good to know how all these pieces interact. This has been really interesting and informative. I really appreciate it. Glad it was helpful. So the end of every episode, we like to close things out with a segment we call our favorite Friday night or fun Friday night. So work is hard. Living in the regulatory CMC world is hard. How do you celebrate on a Friday night? How do you unwind or relax after a big win? Um, well, we've been talking about food, so I'll start with that. Fridays are pizza nights a lot for us. So, um, you know, you're at the end of a week and tired and you don't want to cook. So it's a great night to order in pizza. That's usually one of my Friday night uh, rituals. Hmm. I um. I like to unwind with something relaxing, so I I might visit my private island on a- Animal Crossing, and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know I turn on the volume for it, and you know you can hear the waves crashing, and you know get out to you know next on the beach there. It's 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 gorgeous. Um, so yeah, sometimes I play Animal Crossing, um, and. Uh, if I'm want to do something a bit more active, uh, usually on on um, I usually start working on working on a quilt, piecing the top, or doing some sewing. It's always kind of relaxing and fun, and I made it through the week, and now I can start working on something um, that I enjoy. <laughs> as much as CMC, you enjoy yes. as much as CMC. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. If you have any further questions regarding topics we discussed on today's show, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly through email at info at globalrwc.com or by visiting our website at www.globalrwc.com. There you can find show notes, links to other podcasts, white papers, 
tools for regulatory and clinical strategy, and more information regarding our approach to solving a variety of regulatory and clinical challenges. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you are listening on, or leave us a comment directly on our website. We read each and every comment and review, and it helps us improve the show. So don't be shy, but don't be mean. Thank you, and we wish you continued compliance.